Hey guys, welcome back to Tell Me About It. As you all know, on this show, we skip all the shiny, perfect stuff. You know, like success stories, girl boss energy, that aspirational content of perfect lives. We skip all that. And instead, we solely focus on the mistakes, the anxieties and insecurities and shame spirals that keep us up at night, the rejections, the heartbreaks, basically all the bumps in the road that we experienced along the way. So I had the shittiest day ever yesterday. I feel like a lot of people had the shittiest day ever. Like, bad days are, they fucking suck, obviously. But I'm convinced that the universe, God, whomever, I don't know, insists on humiliating me every two years, like completely humiliate, like making me do something that I will shame spiral about for two years. The last thing that I was shame spiraling about for two years was kind of reaching its like expiration. I started to be like, eh, not, do I really care? Was it that embarrassing? And then lo and behold, yesterday, I humiliated myself again. I just like, I live a life of constant humiliation, which is probably why I do this show so I can commiserate with you guys about it. But damn, that sucks. This week, we have Dr. Luann Brizendine on the show. She is an icon, a legend, and a neuroscientist. She wrote the book, The Female Brain, back in 2006. And I feel like my childhood was centered around that book. My mom loved her books so much. My mom's an author herself. So my mom had like a huge bookshelf in her office that had all of my mom's books on it that she would like gift or sign for people or whatever. And I swear to you, like, 30% of that bookshelf was the female brain because my mom would give her book to people and then give Dr. Brizendine's book to people because it really was that revolutionary. It basically explains all the main differences between the male and female brain, something that hadn't been done in the same way before or since. She gives the neurological explanation behind things like why women use more forms of communication per day than men. Why a woman remembers fights that a man insists never happened. I mean, Christ, the amount of times I've been there. Why thoughts about sex enter a woman's brain much less often than they enter a man's. Why a woman might know what people are feeling, while a man might not be able to spot an emotion unless somebody either cries or threatens bodily harm. And finally, why a woman over 50 is actually more likely to initiate divorce than a man. That one really blew my mind. But I mean, these are like five of hundreds of facts like these in this book. Her book is so revolutionary. It'll give you so much grace and patience and knowledge that will help you in your interpersonal relationships and even your relationship with yourself. I swear, if you haven't read it, pause this podcast, go buy it now. It will absolutely change your life. It was actually made into a movie. Whitney Cummings starred as Dr. Luann Brizendine in the movie, and I asked her about it in this interview, but the movie is just as phenomenal. So buy the book, watch the movie. It's incredible. So she and I talked about basically all the ways in which we're different than men because I had to have her break it down for us and why we find them so irritating. We talked about orgasms and antidepressants, which, God, we can't talk about enough because that issue is for real. We talked about our cycle and how we can and actually should build our life around it. This one really blew my mind because we actually can hack our lives if we build our life around our cycle. And we talked about why we should be excited for menopause. Okay, I know you guys are going to think I'm crazy because I too was convinced that menopause was like 
the afterlife. It was just like the time where all the fun and good sex and fertile years and our youth was over. And like when we just go out to pasture, I just thought society kind of conditioned me to be the opposite of excited for menopause. I just always looked at it like, oh, I'm going to lose my mind. I'm going to like look uglier. I'm going to, you know, not be fertile anymore. But actually, because we talked about our cycle so much in this episode, it dawned on me that pre-menopause in our youth, we really only have one good week a month that we're not ovulating or PMSing or actually bleeding. There's just that one week in there. And basically what Dr. Brizendine says in her book called The Upgrade, which is how she fondly refers to menopause, She says that because we don't have a cycle anymore, we actually get four good weeks, which is completely shocking. I mean, that would be the best thing in the world. So she just wrote this book called The Upgrade, which came out recently, and it is just as revolutionary and incredible as the female brain. It basically tells you how to hack menopause and how these actually can be the best years of your life. So buy The Upgrade for your mom, buy The Female Brain for you, or read both. They're both phenomenal. And let me tell you really quickly why Dr. Brizendine really knows what she's talking about. Dr. Brizendine was among the first to explain why women think, communicate, and feel differently than men. She completed her degree in neurobiology at UC Berkeley, graduated from Yale School of Medicine, and did her internship and residency at Harvard Medical School. (laughs) Jesus, that resume is insane. That's unbelievable. She also founded the Women's Mood and Hormone Clinic at UCSF. So basically, she knows what she's talking about. This episode fucking blew my mind. Get your notes app out or like a pad of paper and pen because there is so much shit you're going to want to remember. Here is Dr. Brizendine. Thanks for having me, Jade. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to talking with you and your audience. So I have a confession. I'm a huge fan of yours. I grew up with your books on my mother's bookshelves. My mom is an author and she had like her books in her office. And every time she would give one of her books, she would give one of yours as well. Like she was the biggest fan of yours. And so today she was like, I bet she'd rather be interviewed by me because I'm her biggest fan. So we were arguing about who actually loves you and your work more. Well, thank your mother for me, honey. Thank her. (laughs) Oh, I will. So you have really started a revolution with women understanding their brains Can you kind of give your backstory and like what inspired you to write The Female Brain, which is your first book? I was interested in my own behavior, my own hormones and everything forever. And then I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley in the kind of the feminist days and, you know, the male and female behavior. They were saying everything had to be unisex. Everything had to be the same. Mm. And of course, you know, um, that was you were you're a heretic if you said that there was any difference at all. You know, it was a really weird time. So I was studying neurobiology. So I learned all of the stuff about hormones and behavior. And obviously it was hugely different between male and female in terms of particularly the sexual part of it, you know, and sexual libido and what in, you know, they study it in animals. So the receptor, it's called receptivity in females, like you're interested in having sex or they even animals will solicit sexual intercourse from the male at a certain period right before their ovulation. And so, you know, it was clear that it was very different. So that, that got me very, very interested in it. And when I found out when I ended up at medical school um, back at Yale, I was um, really shocked when I found out that, you know, females had like a two to one ratio of depression over males. And then I looked into it more deeply and discovered that at childhood, it was a one-to-one ratio. 
childhood depression, male and female. But then when they hit puberty at 12, 13, 14, the females just took off up to that two to one ratio. Wow. And the males kind of stayed the same. So I thought, oh my God, it's not just hormones and sexual behavior, you know, that kind of thing, but it's something about the onset of the menstrual cycle and the hormones that fluctuate in the menstrual cycle. They have something to do with our mood, how we feel, our, you know, our anxiety. And so that's when I started studying that. Um, back in the 1980s. Wow. Let's start with the differences, the fundamental differences between the male and female brain. I know you said in your book that things like the ability to read faces or hear emotional tones and voices or respond to unspoken social cues are different, are fundamentally different between men and women. And I know you also talked about the amygdala, which I found really fascinating. You said the amygdala is the brain center for fear, anger, and aggression, and it's physically larger in men than in women, whereas the anger, fear, and aggression control center, the prefrontal cortex, is relatively larger in women. As a result, it's easier to push a man's anger button. So tell me, how do these differences affect our interpersonal relationships? Okay, let's go back to some basics. I think it's really important to remember that the male and female brain are more alike than different. After all, we are the same species. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're going from that. But then at the moment of conception, if the sperm that enters the egg is a Y chromosome in it, it will be male. And if it's an X, it will be, will be XX, so it will be female. And why that makes a difference is that at the moment of conception, so then, then within six to eight weeks, the tiny testicles in the male fetus start to pump out huge amounts of testosterone that marinates the body and brain of the male fetus, turning all of the body parts and the brain into male brain. So the female develops unperturbed by testosterone. <laughs> so right. by the time we're born, we're born with a female brain and male is born with a male brain. That's mm -hmm. kind of the, the typical way things go. So it's important to understand that a lot of the wiring that's caused during the real development, a laying down of those of the roadways between different parts of the brain and things are caused by what hormone the brain is marinated in. OK, then, of course, then culture starts to act on it like, you know, boys don't cry. You know, the boys get really, you know, they get toughened up and, you know, girls are allowed to be softer and girls are just found to be a little bit more attentive to things. I know when my little nieces would sit on my lap at that age. Oh, they were so interested in my earrings or they were interested, you know, in my, in my necklace, they were interested in, in and the little boys. Are you kidding? They just wanted to squirm around. They wanted to get up and like, they wanted to get up and go, go, go. You know, there was like, you know, they were ready. They were ready to go be king of the hill. And, you know, so we know that that three, four year old, two, three, four year old little boys and girls, they really, they play differently. They really play differently. They interact with us humans <laughs> differently. Right. So for, I think it's helpful for us females to understand these kinds of things that they're that that males are, are really kind of wired differently and they're socialized differently and they really are interested in different things for the most part than we are until it comes to the time when sex starts to come into things. Which is right? why we find them so infuriating most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so what so you know we so the so the boys at about age 11 or 12 their hormones start to pump up their testicles turn on again you know for the first time since they were fetuses you know in utero and they go up times 250 more 
level of testosterone than they had in childhood, which was a very small amount. So they go very quickly where their penis grows longer, they get hair, their testes grow, they start making lots more testosterone. And then 13.5 years old is the average age of the first wet dream for males. Mm. And that is when that kind of we indicate the puberty starts for the boys. And for girls, the menstrual cycle is what we usually point to, which for the average age is 12.1. So right you know, plus or minus a year and a half or two years, something like that. So that's important to just kind of like know that that's how it's laid down. That's how it evolves. And then all of a sudden you hit puberty and the sexual interest, sexual interest in the opposite sex or same sex interest, whatever you're going to be interested in happens normally at that stage, you know, mm -hmm. during, during puberty and boys start looking, every woman that walks by, no matter what age she is, their eyes are lasers onto the breast. <laughs> they look the breast and they're kind of they're sort in heterosexual of, males and right. heterosexual males. If you're going to be opposite sex attracted as a heterosexual male, you're going to be somehow the breast is just something you focus on mm -hmm. and they don't know what's hit them. Sometimes they think they're perverts. I mean, it's, a, it's an emotional time for boys mm -hmm. when they start seeing everything in a sexual context and they it takes some getting used to for them. I think we mm -hmm. women don't understand that. Yeah, I think there's a big disconnect between men and women, to say the least, when it comes to sexuality and just like, you know, even spontaneous orgasms and stuff, which I do want to get into and talk to you about. But you wrote this book how long ago? So, yeah. So the male brain came out in 2010 and okay. the fe female was 2006 and 2007. And then they made the movie. The movie of the female brain got made in, in 2017. How do you feel about that movie? <laughs> I'm so curious. Well, uh, did I you see it? it? I did. Oh, yeah. I've seen it many times. It was, I mean, I thought they did a creative job. Of, I mean, how how many times have you ever taken kind of a little a quasi science book, you know, that, that gets made into like a movie and Whitney, yeah. Cummings, Whitney Cummings plays Dr. Brizendine. She plays she plays me. I always wanted to be tall and thin and, and <laughs> you know, she's just like, you know, whatever. So and but she plays a very I, I'm a much warmer, you know, she plays a very stiff, she plays a very stiff scientist type of person, whatever, um, which is which is fun because that was the character. But I think they they really she captured these little vignettes with four different couples that she mm -hmm. uses in there and a lot of little vignettes with herself and how she was being, you know, she was not able to date and whatever. She had to loosen up a lot. Anyway, I thought, I'm glad you liked it. It was wonderful because it was a way, I read your book as well. I read The Female Brain and The Upgrade, but I just thought it was so cool how they really like took all these scientific facts that could be hard to process for some people, but made them into like little pictures and the way that they explained it was so creative and cool. I like that they changed your name because you are much warmer and like less rigid than she is in the movie, <laughs> for sure. So, but you wrote this book in 2006, 2007, and now, you know, times are so different and there is more awareness about the transgender and non-binary community. Where does that fall into your studies? Okay. So let's go back to how we discussed like the development in utero of the two different, the brains that are the, the, either the male brain or female brain. So because there aren't a lot of scientific studies of trans people, there are more of people who are gay. There are some more studies of that. And it's, it's interesting. Some of the studies show that there are some differences in the brain and especially in things like 
gay males like the odor of males more than females. They have these these pheromone tests that they do, and they'll run them through the these, the brain scanner and watch which ones their brain lights up more to. And straight females like the odor of males, the pheromones of males better. Straight males, and then if you take the if you take gay females, they like the the odors of their, the pheromones of other females better. So they're. That those are the only kind of studies that are actually in the category of what I call something that's kind of um, scientific and that's been looked at. Now, trans people and any of those studies are just barely starting to be done. So there's so much of a lack of understanding of even gender fluid or I mean, it's when I talk about these things, I talk about things that we do know something about that have been studied for a long time that we have some scientific data on. Okay, so I know I mentioned the facial expressions earlier, but it's it's because it really fascinates me. Can you tell me more about how females read facial expressions versus males? You know, some of the most fascinating studies, Jade, are laying in the scanner and looking at facial expressions and what part of the brain is popping like crazy. Mm-hmm. And teen boys, and teen boys, if you show the teen boy various kinds of faces, that might be a face that's got surprise on it or a face that maybe has sadness on it. They start to interpret many of those faces as angry faces. Mm. There's a transition in the attribution of what that face is showing. So all of a sudden they see other faces as being more angry, especially other male faces, which sort of makes sense if you think about it. You know, they're at that stage where they're going to defend their territory. They're starting to be, you know, any aggression or perceived aggression towards them is going to be responded to with anger and aggression. Remember, the one thing in psychology we know that's hugely different between male and female is physical aggression is 20-fold more in male. Mm. 20-fold more in male. And that is not anger. So anger in male and female is one-to-one all all during life. So Mm -hmm. anger. So the feelings, that negative emotion of anger that we, that we all have when something's annoying us, that's the same one-to-one male, female, but then taking it to physical aggression is 20-fold more. And it doesn't mean females don't do physical aggression too. Of course we do, but it's not the same. Is there a part of that that's nurture or is that all nature? Well, Let's be clear. I mean, part of being raised in a society raised by our family, it's we're all taught how to behave in a civilized manner. Okay. Because that's the only way we can relate to each other. But you got to understand the pressure that the hormones are pushing underneath. Remember, the, the, the purpose of a hormone, Jade, the purpose of a hormone is to cause a behavior. If you get a hunger hormone coming, the purpose of a hunger hormone is to make you go eat. The purpose of like a sexual hormone that makes you want to go have sex. So with all of these hormones, let's talk about the cycle, because that's something that I still don't really understand. But sometimes I only feel I feel like we get one good week a month all these different phases, it's it's really miraculous that we're, we manage to do as much or more than men while we're going through all of this. So can you walk us through the actual stages of the menstrual cycle and what can we expect from ourselves hormonally and psychologically because of the hormones? Oh, Jade, thanks for asking me about the menstrual cycle. It's my favorite topic. Okay, <laughs> so good. Go. I love so, talking okay. about the menstrual cycle. So let's cycle. talk about, let's just talk about the facts of how it works. Okay. So we call, we call day one of the cycle, the first day of bleeding. 
Okay, so when your period starts, the first day of bleeding, we call it day one. That's how we count it. And most, most women have a cycle that's between like 26 days up to 31 days. That's kind of like, that's like 80% of women have a cycle that's like that. Other women have ones that are longer, whatever. But that's the, that's, so that is the cycle. Let's just call it 28 days for, for just a four-week cycle as we're going to talk about it. Okay, but it has some variation. So in the first week of the cycle, when you're bleeding, some women bleed for two or three or four days. Some women bleed for six or seven. So sometimes women are bleeding that whole first week, right? Mm -hmm. And that first week of that menstrual cycle is when our estrogen is, is the lowest because remember that the little follicles in the ovary are what make your estrogen. And they are just starting to build up, build up and build up because the pituitary is telling them, ping, 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 you're supposed to grow a follicle getting ready for ovulation. So that first week of the cycle is like growing, growing that follicle and the estrogen is coming a little more every day, a little more, a little more, a little more. And then, so it builds up, builds up the estrogen from that follicle until in that second week of your cycle, it, the estrogen builds up so high that it pings the pituitary to tell it, time to tell ovulation to happen. Bing, ovulation happens. Okay. So that's, that's the end. That's like usually day, day 12 to 14 of your cycle. So in the end of your second week of your cycle, and that first two weeks, we call it that follicular phase follicular because the follicle is growing mm. and the follicle is what's nurturing the little egg that's going to pop out at ovulation. What's neat about as the estrogen gets very high, a few days before ovulation, we get, we get, to want to be sexier. We want, they've done these whole studies where women will, will they'll put on more makeup, they'll make, they'll wear sexier clothes. I mean, almost without even recognizing that you're doing it. You just, when is this? Is this two days before? Yeah, day, usually starting about day 11, 12, 13. So it's towards the end of the second week of your cycle. Okay, but not like cause a couple of days before my period. I am like not. No, I am the opposite. It's of not sexy. your period. Okay. No, this is ovulation. So this is right smack in the middle. So this is day fourteen. So bleeding day one of your period is usually day one, two, three, four, five is bleeding, right? And then we go do, 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 up to day twelve, thirteen, fourteen. That's mm -hmm. the ovulation time. So that week or a few days before ovulation is the highest estrogen out of that follicle because it's just ready to pop out that egg. But it's making the it's making the female want sex, be sexier, sort of attract, wants to attract males, maybe a little more lipstick, and it also makes us. It's our most verbal time, our most our most almost it's our most verbal and chatty time because maybe that's also an attractant to males somehow. You know, I know my my son's in his thirties and he he always kind of likes to you know, whenever he hears a bunch of girls giggling or talking. I mean, there's something that's kind of just. It gets his attention for sure. Right. <laughs> and we feel what... kind of like most powerful then, right? Or like most confident. We comp our confidence, our power. I always tell my female graduate students that if you have to schedule your oral exams, schedule them on day 10 or 11 of your of your menstrual cycle because yes. that will be that's when you're the most verbal, you're the most confident, the most Right. Sweaty. But don't you think we really need to start timing more things to our Yes. You know, like even our our interview, you know what I mean? Or just anything in our life or even workouts, like our cycle is important to understand. Yes, absolutely. And so really that, that second week, what's called the second week of your cycle that we're talking about mm -hmm. is when you feel your best, you're ready to conquer the world. You're like, you say the confidence is up and you know, you're like, you're the most, most sassy and like, you're just feeling okay about being out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the mood, you're, you're, you're less, you're less moody, you're less irritable. You know, you just kind of feel good about stuff and it's just easier to be positive during right. that week. 
And then, dun, dun, dun. Well, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> then the egg pops out of the little follicle that we've been following mm-hmm. at ovulation. And I love it how the sex drive, the sex drive is the most intense the, the, the couple of days before ovulation. Remember, the sperm can last in your in your track for a couple of days mm-hmm. often. It can even travel up your fallopian tubes and go try to find the egg up there. Right, you know? <laughs> right. So, it's climbing up there pretty fast. So that little that little egg that's popped out is um, you know, is kind of like going down there ready to be fertilized. But that little the, the little shell called the follicle that it leaves behind, interesting, crazy thing happens to it. It switches over to making progesterone. Mm. And that switches off a lot of the effects of estrogen. Mm-hmm. And some women feel actually a little couple of days at that point, they might feel a little more irritable or something. It starts to kind of just feel, do you know that? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Take it. So it's <laughs> to say the least, like I cry. I get so like everything bothers me. Everything. It's like fingernails on the chalkboard. Oh, it's so, just, I get start fights. So it's, it's an interesting drug for the first three or four days right after it starts, it kind of like even goes and reverses a lot of what estrogen has done. So some women, not very women are very sensitive to that three or four days after ovulation. And then things kind of smooth out a little bit in that third week because you kind of rebalance things, kind of you get some kind of a, a better feeling. And remember, progesterone also gets metabolized in our body and brain, especially our brain into it's the hormone that it gets metabolized down into in your brain. It's called allo, A-L-L-O. And that allo goes and hits, actually, it hits all the receptors. It's your natural body's Valium. It makes your, it kind of goes and hits all of the Valium receptors in it your makes brain. Which lazy. It makes you lazy, calm down, just kind of a little more sleepy, like wanting to eat more carbs, mm-hmm. wanting to lay on the couch and watch Netflix. You know, it's kind of yes. that feeling of just go away and leave me alone, whatever. It's kind of just, you know, just to snuggle in with a hot chocolate or something, you know, it's that kind of feeling. And so it's not a bad feeling necessarily, but I mean, it's not a bad feeling, except that your your brain is telling you, I should be doing this. I need to be doing, you know, it mm-hmm. just doesn't fit well with our modern schedule so, so well. You know, if you were really listening to your body and doing what your body wants you to do in that period, you might just be, be what we call, we, we blame ourselves for being lazy. But that is really what your body is wanting because mm-hmm. of the hormone progesterone. That's what it's doing. So it makes you kind of, but it makes you kind of chill in a way. It's a little right. bit of like... Then the rock and roll happens in that fourth week, about two or three days before the the thing that triggers the the bleeding to start and everything to be like the rug to be pulled out. If you didn't get pregnant, right? Right. That progesterone big drop. All of a sudden, it's like your brain is in Valium withdrawal because the progesterone's gone. It just starts dropping because it's run out of that follicle. It's done, and it's dropping like a rock. And your brain is in like irritability, valium withdrawal. It's like, that's the fingernails on the chalkboard. And also all of a sudden, just emotional crying over dog food commercials signs. So boom, that's what happens. A lot of women predictably get that 12 to 48 hours before the blood starts. Wow. Some women can get very depressed. Okay. And women who have a tendency to depression, which about 25% of us do, 
that can make you feel much more clinical. I mean, almost clinical depression can come in like, uh, you know, nothing is kind of worth it. Things mm -hmm. are kind of hopeless. You know, it's like, like your, your whole life kind of sucks. It's the opposite of that high feeling that you had right before ovulation. How did you describe it? You said it feels like your brain at, at one point, you like you're friendly and confident and all of that. And then it gets replaced and you start viewing all of the comments and interactions with people as negative. And it feels very scary to be in your brain when that happens, because you're like, social media, everything becomes harder and scarier. And you just have this negative vantage point. You take things more, you take them personally, all of a sudden, right. things that wouldn't have bothered you, the, 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 you know, two weeks ago during the, during the, right before ovulation, they wouldn't have bothered you. They just, you've been rolled off your back like a duck, you know, no big yes. deal. Now, all of a sudden they're piercing your heart right? <laughs> you right, know? and your brain. They're really piercing you. So we talked about how women are more social connections more important to us and we are better at reading faces than men and reading emotions. But let's talk about conflict with women and men, just how it presents itself in the brain. Well, let me so I'll give you I'll give you an example cuz I used to have so when so when I was running my women's mood and hormone clinic, I would often have a couples day where couples would come in, like male female couples, like heterosexual couples usually. Although I I've, I've had some um gay females come in too cuz they had some of the same issues, but mm -hmm. um so it would often be that they would get in their worst fights right before her period. Mm -hmm. You don't say. And so it was like, because all of a sudden, you know, if you think about it from his perspective, her sunny, cheerful personality of a couple of weeks ago is all of a sudden down in the dumps and she's, <laughs> everything is wrong. Everything is wrong with him. I mean, I think we get also crit much more yes. critical of our partners. Oh yes. We get much more critical. Nothing that he does is right. Nothing. I mean, it's like, you know, I know whatever he's trying to be sweet or nice. And then you just think, oh, he's just trying to manipulate whatever it is. You just yes. like nothing. I'm forcing my fiance to listen to this episode because he needs to know it's not just me. Yeah, it's not just you. No, this is how the, this is how the hormones go. It's just like, it's a very, you think it's like, also, if you think about it, there's no reason to have sex then according to mother nature, because you're not going to get pregnant anyway. It's already, it's already over. So, so just, you know, you can just be a BI, you know, whatever, a biatch at that time, <laughs> yes, right? You can just yes. like, you can just go. So, um, but so what I would do with couples though, because sometimes it was really kind of rocking their world and rocking their relationship. So I would have him take what we used to call a three by five uh, white card. <laughs> <laughs> and because there might be an argument that comes up then, right? That's something that is that is really important in your relationship that hasn't been solved. And it, not just to sweep it under the carpet, but to have him write down what the argument is about and to put it in the drawer until two or three days after she started her period, when she's back back to being her best self. And then you can talk about it. And when he's just, when I, as Dr. Brizendine, I assigned him that that was his job. His job was to do that. But just to keep his mouth, so don't pick a fight. Don't, don't go down the rabbit hole of that kind of stuff. Just be honoring the fact that she's not at her best self. And there's no use for you to get into some kind of stupid argument that's going to take you like weeks to, to unravel from the argument. The, you know, arguments are really a waste of our psychic emotional energy as women or men. You know, it's just like, it's like if you have a way, if you have a way, a workaround, this is a workaround, you know, it's kind of a hack. It's a, it's kind of a life hack that you can use to not have to go down those yeah. ridiculous routes, but not to just fresh. If it's an important issue to discuss that something that's a conflict, don't just like throw it away, put it, put it somewhere where you can bring it up and talk about it at a yeah. time when you're, when you're, you know, I don't know. I don't, there's a part of it that I don't like, and that it kind of blames the woman for her own biology, but you know, right. the reality is though, 
these kind of body hacks that have to do with our hormones and how we react, it's just, it's just acknowledging and embracing our authentic self. Right. And getting the guy, getting the guy to help us with that. You know, I could try to be all scientific and fancy with this question, but just riddle me this. What gives men the audacity? Like truly what? <laughs> well, you know, if you think about the confidence that comes from being bigger and stronger and male testosterone makes you, I've learned this from using it in the perimenopause, menopause females that where they lose some of their testosterone mm -hmm. themselves and their libido. And you give, if you give a woman too much testosterone, you too, you too, Jade, can feel like, you know, like out of my way. MF. Right. No, right. it's this really feel. And so this is how guys are feeling all the time. Right. And so their level of confidence about, for most men, you know, their, their level of confidence for being able to have their way and demand their way and the, to deserve their way, you know, that is like a little bit more hardwired and hormonally wired in them than it is for us. I mean, we have to protect helpless infants. Yeah. A hundred years ago, women would have eight or nine or 10, 12 pregnancies. Of course, the average age of death was 49. Right. For women. So you spent your whole life being, being pregnant and having children. So you were really protecting yourself and your children all the time. Mm -hmm. So just think about it's only been recent that that's not where we're at. So evolution hasn't caught up with us yet. Right. That's so interesting because it's true. Like it just always baffles me like how much easier and natural it is when men have conflict and women, it just feels like so much harder and just more complicated. So also, didn't you say that men have stronger emotional reactions, but they, because of society have learned to hide them? Yeah. So there's a really, there's some interesting studies that look at the actual, um, the, the level of an, of an emotional reaction to something. And males were found to have like actually more emotional reaction just in terms of the timing of the whole circuitry in the scanner. They would go from zero to 60 really fast emotionally. And they had to, but they were able to like, they, they had learned to just shut it off. That's so interesting. So it's a, it's a learning thing. Yeah. Isn't that interesting for boys? I mean, boys are taught like to cry, not to fight. Not to, I mean, right. you know, shut it down, just shut it down. So males have really shut it down. Wow. But I love all these differences, how scientifically we are different. Like we enjoy nitpicking and ingrown hairs and even those, that part of the, our brain is different, right? Like grooming. Yeah, we. I mean, females. If you think about what you the videos and stuff you've seen of, of the monkeys and whatever, and the you know the big male, he just sits there while the females groom him away, whatever you know. And so we we females like to you know pick our guys' pimples or pull a hair or just you know we're always like fussing over their body or what you know. And so by the so, way, my fiance and I get into fights weekly about that. I'm like, you have a blackhead on your nose that I'm just dying to get, and he gets so upset. Yeah, please let me just like, let, let, it'll just be a minute. It'll yeah. just be, it won't really hurt. It won't really hurt. Let me just get it away exactly. and then it'll be, it'll be done. Whatever. I do this all I the know. time. Yes. I know. I know. I, I now my, I, I now take the, I say, I guess I, my fingers can, I can pinch. I can, my husband sometimes gets a little hair or two on his nose now. And I'll just grab that little hair with a pin and pull it out. And he gets like, it hurts, but it's like, it's gone. You know? Right, right, right. I have depression and I always am curious. I've been on the pill. I'm not on it anymore, but I was on it for most of my adolescence and then all throughout my early 20s. How often is mental illness confused for a hormone imbalance? So I think it's really an important question that you asked, Jade, because how we just talk through the menstrual cycle. So you'll be on top of the world at the end of week two of your 
cycle. And then by the end of the week four, right before your period, you can have a very big change of being very negative and depressed. So that could be taken as quote unquote mental illness. If you didn't understand the menstrual cycle, you might mislabel it, right? Mm. But if you think some women have that barely at all, it's kind of like just a little ripple or they're a little bit more negative, but they're not. Some women have it a really like they're flying high at the end of week two. And by the end of week four, right before the period, they could be really down in the dumps. And I've seen women get even suicidal at that. I mean, they get so depressed. They feel like I don't want to go on living. I mean, they, right. So it's serious. It's very serious. So it's good to know that because women who have depression, or anxiety do have an exaggerated response to their own hormones mm. often. So That's interesting. It just pushes you further from what's underlying. And so the biology of depression is something that we aren't probably making enough of certain neurochemicals in our brain. The one we know the best about is serotonin. You know, the nice thing about estrogen increases your production in your brain of serotonin. So that may be one reason we're feeling better at that second week. Very interesting that it might be related to serotonin and estrogen. So that's one of the reasons that we sometimes give women estrogen in the perimenopause if they start to get depressed, is that the estrogen will help hold up their serotonin level and make them not feel so depressed and moody. So it's good to understand there's a background of these hormones that we just talked about. But depression in women is known to be either a two to one, three to one, more in females. And interestingly enough, about the age of 50, it changes back closer to the one-to-one. That's so interesting. And so that to me, that's what got my attention is that, okay, it starts to get two-to-one during the, when the start of the menstrual cycle and puberty happens, and then it kind of goes away or it gets a little, it kind of goes in at 50 when the menstrual cycle stops. Mm. So, so the good news for women who are depressed, you know, and have more depression with the cycle, there's good news. That's why I called the new book, The Upgrade, because honestly, honestly, Jade, you know, because I have, I had that kind of depressed cycle. I had that a lot. Yeah. But since menopause, it's gone away. No, I live in constant fear of menopause, which is why I'm excited (laughs) to talk to you about it. Don't be afraid. It's actually, it's like um, when you get through, it's like, it's, it's like on the other side. Yeah. All of a sudden there's, um, there's what, there's what we call the positivity effect, which is every decade you get happier. And this has been done in many, many studies that show that each decade of our lives up to our nineties, we get happier. Wow. And I think there's a big jump for women at 50 because we you know in that in that age between 45 and 55, there's that the transition. I call it the mm-hmm. transition into yes. the up into the upgrade. Right. And so you so anyway, it's important to know the hormonal piece. But going back to the depressed piece, mm-hmm. women who have depression and take the antidepressants that affect the serotonin system, you know, like the drugs Prozac, Paxil, mm-hmm. Celexa, Lexapro, and they basically keep the keep your it's like a reservoir in your brain. They, that keeps your reservoir full, uh, full of serotonin and doesn't mm-hmm. let you get that. It puts a safety net under your mood from getting depressed. Right, right. It also blocks your orgasm, which is a real pain in the neck. Exactly. And I remember in the movie I, like, and in the book, you talked about being over-medicated and what that does to your brain. How do you, what are the signs of that? And how do you know if you're being over-medicated? So, you know, the issue of getting the balance right is a real art in medicine, you know? So which drugs you take is the first thing, right? And then getting the balance right. So I always tried to use the least amount of medicine that caused the least amount of side effects with my patients because Mm -hmm. 
the side effects are like they're they're serious because the side effects of not not being able to have an orgasm because you're blocked your orgasm is blocked by the by the antidepressants which is you know very common is it's 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 a real pain in the neck or if it makes it really hard to have an orgasm then the guy is feeling inadequate totally so there were ways we tried to ameliorate that we would sometimes give people um a lower dose of your SSRI, like a lower dose of the Lexapro, and then and add, add one called Wellbutrin. Mm. Bupropion is another antidepressant. We use them together so that that helps to make uh, some let someone have women have an orgasm. And sometimes we do what's called a drug holiday. Like if you're gonna have sex on Saturday morning, then you skip your Friday dose. That's what my therapist recommends. Okay, so you're on the you're on the yeah. Okay, yes. and it doesn't work perfectly. It's a little better. It's a little better. It doesn't work perfectly, but it's a little better. So there's ways to fix it. Yeah, that's exactly what my therapist says to do. But you didn't hear it from me. Talk to your doctor if this sounds interesting to you. So males can't ejaculate. They don't, they can't have an orgasm often if they're on the antidepressant. So it causes it's caused either what they call ejaculatory delay, meaning a slow orgasm. Interesting. Or it blocks it altogether. So do you recommend when someone feels like they might be depressed to also have their hormones checked? So one of the things we did in the premenopausal female, if, for example, for your situation, Jade, where you have the, you have probably what we used to call premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD, yes. PMDD or PEEPS, severe PMS. And so what, what we did for a long time, which seems to work for some women, is just to put you on a consistent dose, a consistent dose of a low dose um, birth control pill that just, that just flattens out your cycle. Interesting. And that can help a lot of women if you, you know, you kind of look at it for a couple of months. That that may make about a 30% difference in your depression. It mm -hmm. doesn't go the whole way. Okay. But sometimes it allows you to use a lower dose of the antidepressants. Interesting. What do women that are not on antidepressants necessarily, what do we not understand about our orgasms and how hard they are to achieve? So about 30% of women have a hard time having an orgasm. So it's very com very common, really, really common. I think a lot of women beat themselves up about that. And then the other 30% on the other end of the spectrum, they have them very easily, whatever. They kind of go like, well, what's the problem? Right, <laughs> so, right. And then the women in the middle or wherever. But so let's talk about women, uh, libido, orgasm, and testosterone. Remember, our ovaries make testosterone. Mm-hmm. They make um, testosterone during our fertile years. And then when you go through the transition into the upgrade, the upgrade, the artist formerly known as menopause. It's, they stop making the all the hormones, including the testosterone, and your adrenal glands make the rest of it. So, okay. so adrenal glands, adrenal glands plus your ovary makes all of your what's called androgens or the testosterone that you have as a female. And testosterone is what gives us our our interest in sex. It mm -hmm. gives us our libido, our sex drive is caused by testosterone. And um, if you take it away, then you don't have a libido. Mm -hmm. And so males get that if they're getting treated for prostate cancer, they have a testosterone blocking drug or even trans, uh, trans women who are going through the treatment of blocking their testosterone so they don't grow facial hair and et cetera, they get a low libido. Okay. They get a low sex drive because they're, they're taking their testosterone away. So testosterone is just like, it's very clear that that's, a, that's the drug for wanting to have sex. And it's also the drug for having a very fast orgasm or having orgasm. Mm. So sometimes in women who have a hard time having orgasm that are very delayed with it, um, we give them some testosterone to help them have an orgasm. Mm. And some women don't like the testosterone. It makes them have an orgasm too fast. It just oh, like goes, interesting. Do, 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 blip, 
gone. You know, it's just like kind of a, you know, it's kind of like a 19 year old boy. It's just like, boom, <laughs> it's done. Yes. It's, it's over, over. It's one and done very quickly. So the problem with the birth control pill, by the way, is it blocks your testosterone oh. supply. God, I mean, like, what are we supposed to do out here? It's like we take birth control, antidepressants. It's like, how are we supposed to live? Exactly. At any rate, there's a very interesting, you know, that they've been trying all of these drugs in America to, to help women with their sex drive and their libido. And they help a little bit, but not that much. In Europe, they have uh, testosterone for women that comes in the little plunger and stuff. So they've, they've, for the last 10 years, I've been a consultant for many of the companies in the United States that tried to get it passed by the FDA and stuff. And for some reason, I don't know, I don't understand why that it's just... It's not available here. It's available right. all over Europe and Canada. You're, you can have your little, you know, your little uh, testosterone gel plunger, and it's made in the dosage for women. Here we have to have the. I mean, you can get it here because you just have to. You just have to have the compounding pharmacy make it up in a little, a little tiny tube that they make it in the female dosage size. Right. Sometimes I had a female. I had. I remember I had a school teacher that was one of my patients, and she we were placing her testosterone. And the pharmacy made a little mistake and made it into the male dosage instead of female. So she was putting it on and she called me about two weeks later. She goes, Dr. President, I'm not sure, but you know, I've been taking this like they prescribed and everything. She says, but I'm having to go into the restroom in between my classes to sort of like relieve myself. Oh my God. She says, I feel like a 19-year-old boy. That's crazy. (laughs) No, but our hormones, I mean, as we're learning from you, our hormones, it's real, but what can you tell me about spontaneous like arousal and orgasm? I'm not orgasm, but the difference oh. between men and women. It's very much easier to have an orgasm for most women during that. Remember, remember, we're talking about that time when the estrogen is very high because that's also the top of the that's the peak of your testosterone at the same time. Right. And nine, yeah, nineteen year old girls have the, we have the highest testosterone in our lives when we're nineteen. Interesting, which is backwards. Just like we're the most fertile at nineteen. You know, it's like God. Why can't we? save it for later. Well, that's how it used to be. I mean, remember that we, it's like, if, if you die, if you die at 49, you know, exactly. you only get started and it's not like anymore. I mean, we don't finish our education anymore till we're 30. Right. That's the whole backwards thing. It's very difficult. Right. So, but it is easier for men to get spontaneously aroused than it is for women typically because women are thinking about other things. Men well, are more- actually 10 times. Remember males have from three, they have 10 times more testosterone than we do all of their lives just about and they have three times at any if you take an average 25 year old female and 25 year old the male has it, it, like th- at least three times more sex drive than the female wow and at 35 is i mean there are some couples where it's slightly reversed but just this is on this is the app remember this is the yeah average. and even at 50 you know there's still the, the guy has three at least three times more interest in sex than the female Wow, that sucks for us. <laughs> yeah, but it kind of sucks for them too. If you think that's about true, it. no, definitely because they always feel like they're being turned down. Oh, that's I mean, uh, boohoo. Oh. No, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know that they always feel like they're being turned down, and then the females we always feel like, so how come you're always bothering me? Whatever right. you know. So before we get into menopause, which I want to talk to you about briefly. What can you tell me about energetic imprinting in utero? With trauma, you mean? Yeah. So so the biggest studies that we know about in terms of trauma in utero mm-hmm. came from the from World War II. I think they were Danish studies. When, when they were being invaded and they were starving, they had no food. So all of these women that were pregnant then, 
that had, you know, that were, that were pregnant and they were having this huge stressor, that incredible trauma of the war and mm -hmm. the no food and, you know, just not anything and, you know, bad nutrition, et cetera. They compared the babies that those women had that were born during and right after the war mm -hmm. with babies they had later after wartime or the ones they had before the war came. They followed them and they following them still. They're all, they're in their, their mid seventies. Now they followed them all these years. And that's where they get, so the imprinting, so those that were stressed in utero ended up having much more heart disease, mm. uh, much more cancer, many, many more illnesses, much more clinical depression. Clearly, if your mother is stressed terribly during her pregnancy with you, then that's not a good thing for the energetic imprinting that happens. Interesting. Yeah, because I, I feel like that trauma can be passed down generationally, right? Through that study. They think that so trauma, they had that three generational model of trauma passing down. Like if you if you take people who have in childhood been abused, mm -hmm. either physically abused or starved or neglected or any of the category of like what they call the incidences of like sort of chronic childhood abuse. Mm -hmm. Those people, when they become parents, have a lot of things that they, you know, that, that are difficult for them. They end up passing down that some of that type of different type of trauma, probably, but that they had as kids and that it goes on for three generations. So that's, it's not entirely completely nailed down with hard science okay. yet, but there's, but it's clear that there's something that lasts for about three generations. They've done it in the animal studies. The animal studies will show that they, they pass it down for three generations before it's finally um, kind of reversed. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. I could sit with you for like hours and ask you a million questions about the brain, <laughs> but let's get into your new book, The Upgrade, which I have an exclusive copy of before it came out. If you haven't read The Female Brain, read The Female Brain. The Upgrade is just as good. There's so much in here, but I think a lot of the listeners of this show really are like me and are terrified of menopause. What can you dispel about that myth? I would just say, hey, ladies, it, listen, it's, 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 it's some rock and roll up and downs when you go through the, with the transition and the, what we call the perimenopause. And then though, it's, it's great once you hit the upgrade. I mean, it's really, everything is so much better. So there's a really nice light at the end of the tunnel of all this. You have some years. So what happens though, during the pair, the reason that the, the perimenopause kind of stage can be rock and roll, because it's almost like. What's perimenopause? When's that? It's, it basically happens. It's some women start as early as like 39 to 42. That's okay. kind of called early, but generally it's 42 to 43 when you sort of start and you're not kind of like really in the middle of it till you're about 45 plus. And then remember that the, the average age of your last being into the menopause, no period for 12 months is usually age 51. Okay. So let's usually at age 50, you stop having periods. And by 51, you're technically only, you are technically only in menopause after you haven't had a period for 12 months. Yeah. I think that what people assume about that time in your life is that you kind of shrivel up and die and that like, <laughs> you know, you can't get wet anymore. You and your husband don't have sex anymore. And like, it just feels like all negative association. Oh, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. And so you said relationships, self-care, confidence, inner strength, agency, effectiveness all get better. So how does that happen? 
It does. It really does. It's, just, it's amazing. Well, think about, we just talked about that, the rock and roll of like this week to week to week changes that happen with the hormones during our cycle, mm -hmm. during what I call the fertility phase. The fertility phase of our life is always like pulling us to and fro, up and down, back and forth. Just think what a blessing that is when that stops. That's true. <laughs> That's true. When I finally get off this crazy ride. That's true you're not being jerked around by your hormones anymore. Yeah. It's such a blessing. It's such a blessing. So think about it that way, that all of a sudden it stops. So that's that's the good news. And that's why the upgrade lets you, then you're able to like focus on your, being your most authentic self and coming, coming back to a place of like speaking your own truth and you're able to be much more direct. And it's just, it's, it, it's really a blessed time. So mm -hmm. they, that's why I call it the upgrade. So there's nothing to be afraid of. The transition period can be kind of like puberty in reverse as your, as your, as your cycle is winding down because right. the communication between your ovary and the pituitary starts to kind of break down a little bit because those you're losing, your follicles are sort of running out. Right. We have a certain amount of eggs at birth, ladies, like maybe five, we end up with like say 500,000 eggs and we just start ovulating them at age 12 to 14. And then by the time we hit like in our mid forties, we've kind of like run out and uh, they're sort of spotty. So you'll have a, you'll have one period where you hard, have no ovulation at all, even though you have bleeding, you know, it's, and you sometimes have, uh, sometimes you have progesterone in the cycle, but if you don't ovulate, you don't have any progesterone. So the cycles can become intermittent. So you might have PMS at a really weird time. So that's what, what I do for women in that period. I tend to put women for a few years just on a, con, on a constant level of, of birth control pills just to kind of flatten out. It's, you don't need to go. So ladies, just there, there are hacks. There are body hacks of a way around this. With hormone therapy, right? With hormone With therapy. And just like uh, some women just need a little, like, little extra estrogen. Mm -hmm. Whatever you need, it's out there for you. So just go and get it because you do not need to suffer. The message is, is it's getting there and getting through that transition period, which yes. I talk about. I talk about a lot of the hacks in the book, you know, a lot of the hacks about ways around it. So, you know, if you're in the middle of that right now, you're starting in that or you think you're starting in that, just like, you know, see what, see what you can do. I love reframing that time of your life because it can feel like uh-oh, like really scary. And would you say that you revert back to like a childlike version of yourself or is this a whole new version of you? Actually, it's a whole new version of you because think of all the wisdom that you've accumulated from your experiences. So all of a sudden it's like, wow. But you're also able to like, you know, grab the things that you really felt passionate about maybe when you're 9, 10, 11, you know, that some of the things that you really cared about at different stages of your life, I don't know, there's, there's all of a sudden you're, you're released from this, like the push and pull of all of these fertility hormones mm -hmm. and all the behavioral parts of the fertility hormones. You, you really have, um, you know, some clear sailing ahead. And, you know, usually by that time, your kids are, you know, if they're not out of the house, they're starting to get out, you know, it's like you're, you're finished with the really heavy lifting of the, of the childhood stage. So you're saying there are definite positives and even the negative things that there are, there's hormone therapy, there are resources to make those things easier on you. Absolutely. Okay. I love that. So if you're worried about menopause, if it keeps you up at night, buy her book, The Upgrade. It's absolutely incredible. And if you haven't read The Female Brain, do so. It's absolutely life-changing. Thank you so much for doing this with me. We are finished. Um, where can everyone find your book and when does it come out? 
So it comes out, it comes out on April the 19th, on Tuesday, the 18th of April, and you can get it off of Amazon, you can get it off of any of the bookstores Perfect. everywhere will have it. I don't know if you're going into bookstores yet or not. We're yes. just starting to go back into bookstores. It's kind of fun Support to go browse local in a bookstore. Yes. And the exciting part of it is that it's a message of hope to women and just yes, how to be is. able to find your own hacks to your own, you know, chapter six is all about very cool hacks to the neurobiology of your own brain and body. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Thank Bye. you, everybody. Bye. Okay, I swear there were 48,000 times during that conversation that I just wanted to stop and be like, wait, I need to write this all down because I don't want to forget anything. I feel like I have a new lease on life after talking to her. Like I understand myself and other people so much better. And I don't know. She's just brilliant, obviously, to say the least. And I loved, loved, loved picking her female brain. Okay, that's I, now you know it's time for me to go. Okay, I'll see you guys back here next week. Same time, same place. Thank you as always for spending this time with me and love you guys. See you back here next week. Bye.